And we are rounding the corner here to the final conclusion. And Paul's giving a few final instructions to the church as a whole. And I do want to emphasize that, that this passage is addressing the whole church. So it applies individually. Okay, so this idea of rejoicing, praying, giving thanks, um, counseling others. I mean, there's individual application there, but it's really, it has the whole church in view. And that's especially true with our text this morning. So I'll read in verse 19. He says, Do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophecies. But examine all things. Hold fast to that which is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Talking about prophecy. And so the title of the sermon this morning is Prophecy in the Church. Prophecy in the Church. And this text is going to address what I believe is the central issue in any church that will determine the longevity and the health of that church. America is filled with empty church buildings, isn't it? Uh, drive through the major cities, even. Drive through San Francisco. Oh, there's big church buildings. They're still around. Uh, even in our town, there, there's a lot of church buildings. A very few of them are full, uh, especially the, the eastern seaboard, the, the, the northeast region, New England. Uh, a church graveyard, some people even call it. Uh, a time when there was so much light, so much influence from Christianity and Scripture, but now the churches are, they're gone. Or if they are still there, if there are still people there, they, they've bought in to all the modern cultural issues. Okay, they're flying the rainbow flag, they're flying the BLM flag, they're flying all that stuff. And so we can just ask our, our, ourselves, what, what could happen to a church? What, what is the first step a church takes that, that ends in that road, that ends in apostasy, that ends by abandoning the faith, that ends by uh, people slowly leaving, just finding other things that are more helpful to them because they've long ago abandoned any commitment to God's word. This is what the passage is, is addressing here. And that is the church dies that fails to honor God's word. So when God's word ceases to be honored in a church, when it ceases to be the front and center truth, reality, the centerpiece of the church's ministry, the church begins the slow and sad process of decay and death. And through this text here before us, Christ is directing our church to listen to God's word in two ways, two attitudes, with eagerness on the one hand, but also on the other hand, with discernment. So Christ is directing our church to listen to God's word with eagerness and discernment. That's the main idea. And so first, Paul is addressing this idea of eagerly listening to God's word, giving proper attention to the word of God. And he says it in a very interesting way. So he doesn't use those words that I just used. He says these other words that re require a bit of explanation. What does he say? He says, do not quench the Spirit. What, is, what does that mean? 
do not despise prophecies. Okay, so there's prophecy in the church. Well, that's the title of the sermon, isn't it? Prophecy in the church. And so we do have to ask ourselves, what, how do we get this idea of honoring God's word from what he's saying here? How, did, how am I getting that? Well, we have to first consider th- this whole idea of prophecy. So that's the subject of the text, is this idea of prophecy and the relevance of prophecy for every local church. He says, do not quench the spirit and do not despise prophecies. So what exactly is prophecy? Well, if we look in scripture, whether in the Old Testament or the New Testament, we find that prophecy is an infallible communication from God through a human spokesman. Okay, so just simply when God speaks to us through people, that's what prophecy is. It's an infallible communication from God, and I get that from Deuteronomy 18, where God commanded his people about giving attention to prophecy. He said, I will put words, my words, in his mouth, referring to the prophet's mouth, and he will speak to them all that I command him. So notice what he's saying. He's not saying, I will drop an impression into the mind of someone, and they may or may not get it right. No, God is saying, when someone speaks to you as a prophet, I'm going to miraculously ensure that the very words, every single word they speak or write, is going to be a perfect communication from God. And so there's this promise of 100% accuracy. But what what if there's false prophets? As scripture warns us of, there'll be false prophets all the time coming into God's people, whether in the old covenant era or in our context here as a local church. How could we tell? Well, God, again, gives us clear instructions. He says, if you're worried about discerning whether or not someone is a true prophet, here's what you do. When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing does not come about or come true, that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. That prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You shall not be afraid of him. In other words, if a prophet says something and makes a prediction about an event, he gets it wrong, you're supposed to completely ignore him. Cross him off your list, unfollow, unsubscribe, leave the church, whatever that means. You, you are to completely disregard anyone that says that they're a prophet uh, unless they are 100% accurate. Okay, so broadly, that's what a prophet is in Scripture. I hope we're clear on that. Someone that infallibly communicates from God to God's people. And so there were prophets, obviously, in the Old Testament. Elijah, Moses, a good chunk of the Old Testament is called the major and minor prophets. So prophecy is a major uh, issue of importance in Scripture. But in the New Testament era we find that the prophets were still active in the New Testament era, in the, newly church, in the early church. And Ephesians 2 verse 20 says that the church has been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. And so that's imp- important for us to, uh, to, to consider. And as you may already be aware of, this church is not a charismatic or Pentecostal church. I don't think that's a surprise to anyone. But there was a time when prophecy was active in the church. And we can't pretend like that wasn't ever a reality. 
Uh, in the early church, the time between the ascension of Christ and the death of the last apostle, uh, roughly 60 years, the church did not have a complete New Testament. Uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ and all that we have wasn't yet put down in writing. And so the early church couldn't do what I'm doing today, where someone that's not a prophet could get up and just expound the word of God and be sure that we were in God's word. No, um, they had some scripture and they were gradually accumulating it, but God, he, he nurtured the infant church through this gift of prophecy and apostles. So the apostles guided the early church and were authorities uh, over, over the, the global church. But then the prophets, they also filled in this gap for the church. And they would come in and give a message from God. And the church, what does it say here? The church couldn't turn them away. They couldn't say, oh no, you're not, you're, you know, we don't do prophecy here. That wasn't an option for the early church. While prophecy was still ongoing and still active, the church had a responsibility uh, to not quench the spirit. In a way, if the spirit was trying to speak to the church, the church had to listen. The church had to listen if God was speaking to them through a prophet. And so the prophets did have this very important role to edify the church. Uh, Paul even said it was the most important gift in the New Testament era because the prophet spoke to people to build them up and to encourage them. Okay, but after the last apostle, uh, prophecy was forbidden. So at the very end of the Bible, uh, we have this text in Revelation 22, where, where the apostle jo John, the last living apostle, he said that if anyone adds to the prophecy of this book, right, the last book in the Bible, uh, God will add to him the plagues which are written in this book. And so, okay, prophecy was active in the early church, but it obviously did cease at some point. And whether or not you are fully convinced by that argument that, that God has definitively closed prophecy, you have to admit it's the, the occurrences of true prophecy in the last 2,000 years have been quite rare. I would even say you're left with, um, you don't have a lot of options for, for building a historical case for the continuation of prophecy. Okay, the, the people that have claimed to be prophets uh, throughout the last 2,000 years after the, the last apostle, by and large, this, these people have been the most outlandish heretics in the church. Uh, there was Muhammad, for example. He claimed to be a prophet. And what many people don't know is he actually borrowed a lot of his theology from Scripture. So he taught that, that the Christians had corrupted Scripture, but it is an Abrahamic religion, Islam. And so he claimed to be a prophet, and what did he do? Well, he was sexually immoral. He had multiple wives. He ended up being this political, power-hungry, false prophet. And so obviously not a true prophet of God. Uh, in the time of the Reformation, when all the, the reformers were rediscovering Scripture and rediscovering the, the clear teachings of Scripture over and against the errors of the Roman Catholic Church, there were also a group of people called the Radical Reformers. And so they said, yeah, we like what you're doing. Let's break away from the church, but let's go all the way. Let's break all the way away from the church, and let's start prophesying. And there was a man 
that actually taught his followers that the new Jerusalem would descend out of heaven from God to Munster, Germany. And so he said, I am the prophet, the final prophet of God. Let's all gather together to Munster, Germany. Uh, what happened to them? Well, they got, they got obliterated by the, the, army, the national armies. That did not end well. Joseph Smith, the founder of Mormonism, again, claimed to be a prophet. Again, a sexually immoral man had multiple, I, I don't even know if you could call them wives, but if you read anything about his life, far from any type of, of prophet bearing any kind of fruit consistent with biblical ethics. And so there are, so that at least indicates that, okay, th- there are not a lot of occurrences we can point to for prophecy continuing in the church today. Uh, but as many of you know, the charismatic movement has tried to resurrect this thing, okay, in the last hundred years, beginning with the early 1900s. They said, no, we rediscovered the, the gifts, the sign gifts, the miraculous gifts of prophecy, healing, and speaking in tongues. And so, as you're aware, there's many people that do claim they're a prophet. I mean, in this town, there are people that would call themselves prophets. Uh, up the road, just an hour up the road, I-5, a major center that claims to be, have prophets. Right? The people leading that church claim to be prophets. But if you were to listen carefully to how they define prophecy, you discover it's very different than, than what we just saw in Deuteronomy, in Scripture. And one of the leading theologians that support uh, this, this false view of prophecy, here's how he would define it. He says, count, talking to Christians, remember that what is spoken in any prophecy today is not the word of God, but is simply a human being reporting in merely, merely human words, something which God has brought to mind. Okay, so you, sh- you should be a little concerned by that definition. Uh, he, when he says to the church about prophecy, he says, uh, remember that when you're hearing prophecy today, it's not really God's word. It's just, well, God has put a thought in someone's mind. He's brought something to mind, put something on their heart, and they'll ne- they're now trying to relate it to you. And they may get it wrong. But that's okay. Prophecy's changed. And this is where we get the modern practice of, well, the, Lord, the Spirit has just laid it on my heart. Or no, I know you don't think it's a good idea, but the Spirit is really telling me to do such and such. We, we are kind of, by saying things like that, uh, starting to talk prophetically. And we need to be careful uh, of that. We need to be careful that we see a clear distinction between prophecy and just being filled with the Spirit, being filled with Scripture, and making wise decisions based on a renewed mind in the Scripture. And so I would really encourage you to disregard the modern prophets, and there are a ton of them. You would be surprised how popular they are, but they are honestly comical. I mean, they, they tried to give various prophecies about COVID-19 and when it would end and how it would go down. They got it all wrong. Uh, they all prophesied that Trump would win 2020, and uh, oops, they even issued apologies, some of them. <laughs> they said, oh, sorry, I got that wrong. I got my, my wires crossed with the Holy Spirit or something, uh, making lame excuses like that. And so, okay, what's the point of going through all that? Well, it's just this. We, we can safely conclude that prophecy 
is not operating in the church in the exact same way today as it was in the early church. Okay, so there's not someone that's going to walk in the door and say, I'm a prophet sent from the church of uh, Dallas, Texas, and I hear, have a message from God for you. And well, okay, here we have a prophecy from God. No, we can, be, we can safely conclude that prophecy has ceased in the New Testament era, and we have a complete canon of Scripture. And so, okay, well, you may be saying, well, well, Tommy, are you just explaining away the text then? <laughs> because the text says, don't despise prophecies. So you, for the last few minutes, have been saying why prophecy is not active anymore. Uh, what is this speaking about now? Is this not relevant for us? Well, well no, I would say it, it's still relevant. But we need to return to that definition of prophecy. Okay, what is prophecy? It's an infallible communication from God to his people. And so where, oh where, can we find that today? Do we, do we have any infallible words from God today? And where can we find them? They're right here. Okay, so this book is a prophetic word. And scripture even refers to itself with that language. Uh, where Peter calls the scripture God's prophetic word. That's like a light shining in a dark place. Meaning that, meaning that for the church, this is our sole authority. Uh, this is our sole source of infallible words from God. And Paul says that this is actually the spirit ministering among the church, in the church, through the word. Uh, some people try to separate verse 19 and verse 20, and they say, do not quench the spirit. And they use that almost to defend any kind of kooky practice they have. Oh, I don't think that was God speaking to you. Oh, don't quench the spirit. Or, you know, they're flailing around in, in, uh, in worship and going to various experiences, and you, you try to counsel them to, to um, be more sober-minded. And they say, well, don't quench the spirit. Okay, so it's not, I think there's some legitimacy to applying this to a dead church, where the church is just, everything's written out, the prayers are written out, the homilies written out, we're reading all the sermons, we all sound like robots, um, it's dead. I think it does apply to that, I think that's fair, but the primary application here is to the church's attitude toward God's word, toward prophecy, the prophetic word of scripture. And so he says, do not quench the spirit. The spirit in this picture is presented to us as a fire. So the word quench, what do you quench? Well, you quench a flame. That's how the word is everywhere used. Uh, you would put out a fire. Uh, you would quench the flaming arrows of the evil one in Ephesians 6 with spiritual armor. But the spirit here is portrayed as a, a beneficial fire burning in the midst of the church. And so that picture, right, of fire, life-giving fire, communicates heat. Uh, the Holy Spirit is warming the church in a spiritual sense. He, he's giving off light. He's dispelling darkness uh, by his word, by his truth among us. And so... We cannot despise the Spirit or what the Spirit is saying to us. We cannot despise prophecies. 
And so there is a connection between verse 19 and 20. The Spirit is quenched by despising Scripture. That's what I'm saying. That's what the text is saying. We quench the Spirit when when we do not place Scripture at the center of our church and the center of our lives individually. And we can do this in in many different ways. We can despise God's Word by neglecting certain parts of it. Uh, We just bounce around as a church, and many pastors do this. They'll do topical preaching, uh, which is sometimes legitimate. I don't think there's a command against preaching on a topic occasionally. Uh, But some pastors do that. That's their normal practice. It's just, well, today I'm going to talk about Thanksgiving. And again, Thanksgiving is a topic in Scripture, uh, but that sermon is not based on any exegesis or exposition or serious study. It's just, well, I'm, I'm finding this word here, and then I'm kinda, I kind of walk away from the Bible, and I'm just, I'm just spinning my own stuff now. Um, convenient. So it's a convenient way of preaching your own ideas. That's why a lot of pastors opt to go that route. I once heard a pastor of a, of a church called the, the Father's House, and he preached on that text from John 14. In my Father's house are many mansions, or many rooms. And he used that text to, to present their building program. And he said, well, see, we're called the Father's House, and the Father's House is supposed to have many rooms in the house. And so we need to build more rooms. Um, wow. Okay, that's despising God's word, if I ever heard of a, an example. So we can, we can do that. Uh, we can use this, this practice of bouncing around so much in the Bible that we are neglecting certain parts of it, and individually too. So in our own time in Scripture, if we're just in the Psalms. It's just only Psalms, and it's only Ephesians. That's all we ever read. Uh, well, there's, this, there's all this other stuff in here too. And so we can even despise God's word maybe in a less comical way, a less severe way, but we can still be guilty of that at times, not being committed to regularly exposing ourselves to the whole counsel of God, to the whole counsel of God. We can also be New Testament-only Christians. Uh, We can think, well, the, the New Testament is better than the Old Testament. It's much clearer and it speaks of much greater realities, and I would agree in some sense with that. The New Testament, I mean, Revelation says more about heaven than any other part of the Bible. It reveals Christ to us. It explains the gospel in simple language, and I even do think the church Sunday morning should have some preference for the New Testament. Uh, the, the letters in the New Testament are addressed to the church, and so it's fair to give some additional time to those, But again, there's this 70% or more of our Bible is the Old Testament. (laughs) Uh, And as a church, we can't just ignore that. Uh, We can't just say, well, we'll read that uh, sometime. I'll trust that you're all reading that, but we'll only stick to the New Testament. I think we do need to spend time in the Old Testament. And as I mentioned last week, my plan is to go through Ruth, which is just a small book in the Old Testament that will introduce us to that genre. Maybe those of us that haven't walked through an Old Testament narrative as a church before. And that's a, that's a, a self-contained story, a really, a really great story with a lot of truth for us there. So 
we need to be careful that we're not neglecting the Old Testament as a church or individually. Uh, scripture is all God-breathed and profitable. Uh, and so the, the takeaway here is that you need to be exposed to the entire Bible. So Scripture is sufficient. Now, scripture is how you grow, but you need the whole Bible. You need the whole Bible to grow. If you don't have the whole Bible washing over your mind and your heart, you'll be unbalanced. Uh, you'll, you'll maybe have a soft heart. You'll maybe have a really deep heart of compassion for people that are suffering. But if you never read Proverbs, you're just going to make a lot of avoidable mistakes in life. Okay? But we can also despise prophet, prophecies by neglecting it entirely. And that is surely the greater danger as a church, that we can, we can get to a point when we just get tired of this. It's just not enough. It's not enough to just sit here and read the Bible, study the Bible, discuss the Bible, hear the Bible preached, sing themes coming out of the Bible. And again, not to be, not to be dramatic or to be pessimistic about the state of the church, but it is the reality that most churches, they are not content with just God's word. Uh, they're not content uh, with seriously devoting themselves to the study of God's word, right? What, what do churches do? You can, you can think of things. What do churches do that grow tired and weary of just going through the plain meaning of scripture? Well, it begins with shorten the sermon. Oh man, I can't listen to 40 minutes or 50 minutes, definitely not an hour. <laughs> can we shorten this thing? Like, can't you just boil it down? Uh, make the service a little more entertaining. Uh, can't we hire some musicians to come in here? Um, maybe tell more jokes and stories? Uh, why are you always talking about sin and judgment and heaven and hell and all these? I mean, that's serious stuff. And I had a long week. Can't you just make me feel a little more comfortable? Especially if I'm new to this whole Christianity thing. Well, we can play movie clips. I have one pastor, I, I sat through a sermon and he played Cars. And, you know, great movie. You know, for kids. <laughs> but that was a major focus of his sermon. Trying to read Jesus into the, the car was like Jesus sacrificing for the other car. And it's just silly stuff, right? It's just trifling when you really should be giving so much more sobriety to, to the service. Or we can have a children's sermon. Hey, let's make this more family-oriented, okay? We'll have the kids come down, and we'll, we'll tell a little story. Um, Santa Claus might show up around Christmas time. More music, right? Shorter sermon, more music. Six songs, seven songs, eight songs, longer songs, ten-minute songs. Uh, on and on it goes. Add some drama. So again, these are all things churches actually do that I've, I've seen. Do. I'm not just making stuff up here. Churches do this, this stuff. Do some drama. Oh, let's really bring this to life. I mean, preaching the Bible, that's one thing, but to see it acted out is another thing. Let's get, you know, a big, huge cross up here. Let's put on a show. Uh, let's have the Apostle Peter show up and deliver his message, his sermon in character, in costume. Uh, let's have interpretive dance. You know, you see the people with the, with the wands. I forgot what, I don't know what that's called, but it, the ribbons, right? And they twirl it around, right? So 
have that as well. Ballet, a church in New York, they even had ballet during communion. So let's not meditate on the cross and just have, you know, soft music playing and all that, but let's have some ballerinas up here. You know, let's show the world that we are culturally tuned in to things. Uh, Add some stunts, and don't even get me started on, on stunts. Uh, pastors flying in overhead from, from what, zip lines, popping out of the stage, riding up on a dirt bike. Again, all things churches really do. And oh yeah, can you skip the, those passages that address my sin? I mean, I'm fine with you talking about sin as this, this big cloudy thing way over there, but, but don't tell me about specific sin. That is the one thing we can't have. And so, again, it's not just that we will wake up one day and decide to abandon Scripture. No, it will be this. This will start by us resisting something God is trying to bring to our conscience, right? It it starts by us having a hard heart and by clinging to some sin, specific sin, that we're we're unwilling to part with that. And so now that leads us to distance ourselves from God's Word, because what does this do? This doesn't let me have a sweet devotional time when I'm stuck in my sin, when I'm clinging to my sin. And so the church gradually drifts from that, and they want to be accepted by the world. You know, what's the big thing in our world today? What is everyone demanding acceptance for? Right? It's the sexual revolution. Affirm us, affirm us, affirm us, affirm us. Well, we're, we're real friendly people, and we have the good news of Jesus Christ for you. Uh, and we know you don't agree on all things, but why don't you come anyway and, and enter- at least entertain what the Bible says about sin and salvation? Well, no, I won't come unless this. And so what does the church do? Okay, well, we will be a little, we'll start to make some excuses. We'll start to downplay that a little bit. Uh, we will not talk so openly against it, sexual sin, sec- the sexual ideology in our culture. And then eventually we wake up th- one day and we're, we are a fully affirming church. We fully affirm it. We are convinced that Jesus would want all people to come to him and we don't want any barriers. So we want to be loved by the world. We don't want to repent of our sin. And so that is the path to apostasy. And this sounds, th- to us sitting here today, it almost sounds laughable. I mean, I know many of you, you're very serious Christians, and you're, you're in the scripture. Uh, you love Christ, uh, but we'll have children, and they'll grow up, and they will not automatically be us. They will not automatically hold to all the things we hold to. So we need to enforce the same standard and teach the same standard to our children, and then they need to carry the torch as well and be faithful to all of scripture and have that commitment. Uh, in other words, this is the anchor that will keep us on the right path, right? If we just have that commitment as a church, no matter what we're going to do, it might look differently. There might be different people participating at times, <clears throat> but the scripture will be at the center of our small groups, at the center of our worship service, at the center of any individual ministry we do, even benevolent ministry or, or food banks and things like that. I mean, Scripture needs to be the the major focus of every ministry of our church. And we need to be careful of the temptation to drift from it. 
And so I've been talking about the church, but I can't let you off as an individual either. As, as individuals, we can be tempted to despise God's word as well, to not give it its proper place. Uh, this really begins by uh, coming to church, isn't it? I mean, God ha- has, he wants you to be in fellowship with other believers. And the, the greatest blessing that you will receive in the week is the worship service in the church. Uh, not just because of a preacher is there, but every, we are all here. And we all have spiritual gifts that we need to minister to one another. And I can even step on, I'll risk stepping on a few toes here and even say we should be on time for church and prepared for church. Some of us have excuses and some of us don't. Uh, some of us also have, we do have extenuating circumstances that we, we can't be here every Sunday. We can't be here every Sunday. And that's a reality, maybe because of work or we're caring for someone who's sick. Um, but we need to be fully convinced that we are really making every effort to attend corporate worship and make that the major priority of our week. Right? God says, I will honor the man or woman that honors me. Right? He said that to Eli in the Old Testament. We also despise God's word if we don't digest what we hear. We just think, oh, well, I had a brush with the Bible at church. I was there, wasn't I? Uh, or I read, I did my reading this morning. I read it, didn't I? But there's no digesting. There's no, there's no seeking for God. We, we can go through these things mechanically and not be seeking God. And we, are all, we all fall into that at times, myself included. And so I would just ask you, uh, rather pointedly, how many minutes, how many minutes did you spend yesterday with an open Bible? So it's one thing to say, well, I love the Bible. It's another thing to say, okay, how many minutes? And again, we don't want to be legalistic. We don't want to say, well, it's this many minutes. But okay, if the Bible is zero minutes or two minutes and all this other stuff that's really disposable and expendable is three hours or more, that might indicate to you that something should change. Right? God is speaking to us as a church and also as individuals through his word, but it won't be automatic. We have to listen. So the Spirit wants to work in our church and in our lives, but we can quench the Spirit. And so we need to be listening when the Spirit speaks to us. And so that addresses this attitude of being eager to hear God's word. But now in verse 21 and 22, he says, well, we can't go too far with that. You can't be so eager that you have no discernment. And that's the second attitude. We need to listen not only with eagerness, but also with discernment. He says, Do, but examine all things. Hold fast to that which is good and abstain from every form of evil. So he says we need to examine everything. So when you come to church or when you listen to something or read something, don't just, don't just take it. Don't just say, well, this man, he was smiling. He seems so nice. And uh, all my friends love him. And so I will just accept anything he dishes my way, anything he puts on the plate, I'm eating it. Right? So nice and enjoyable to benefit from this man or woman's ministry. But you have to keep in mind, all teachers, every teacher is fallible. 
I'm fallible. As much as I regret it, at some point, I'm going to get something wrong. I mean, over the course of the years, decades, I'll be here, Lord willing. Uh, there'll be something that, that I miss it. Uh, m- maybe not a, a great major doctrine of the faith, God forbid. Uh, but again, just because someone's a preacher does not make him infallible. Okay, I haven't been to heaven Seminary didn't give me this stamp of infallibility that, that you now have to just blindly accept anything I say. No, Scripture would say, even in your church, examine everything. That word means to test everything. But unfortunately, well, not unfortunately, it's just the fact that Paul doesn't spell out how we test things. He just says, test everything. But there's other passages we, we need to go to to really get more detail for that. And so I do think it's worth our time to look at these two briefly. Matthew 7, if you want to flip there. Matthew 7, uh, verse 15, and this is the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, Jesus is speaking to his disciples and warning them about the presence of error, about false teachers and false prophets that they will encounter. They will have brushes with malicious, not only fallible, but malicious teachers. So all teachers are fallible, but some are murderers, is what this text says. He says, verse 15, Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, But the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce, a good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Okay, so he says first, you need to be aware, beware of false prophets. So don't just walk around in the world thinking you'll never run into a false teacher or a false prophet. If you have 10 books on the bookshelf, one or two of them might be deadly error. That might have been written by a wolf in sheep's clothing. Uh, a, few, a certain percentage of churches, again, <clears throat> you can't just walk into a church that seems nice and assume that because it feels nice and the people are smiling and nice that everything there is going to be helpful to you. So you have to beware of that. You have to beware of being naive, in other words. Don't be naive about the reality of uh, false teachers. But he also says, you will recognize them by their fruit. So we're asking this question, okay, how do I examine what I'm intaking? Uh, what, how do I examine what I'm taking in? Jesus says the first thing to pay attention to is the fruit. Uh, and that's a picture for the behavior of the teacher. So is the teacher, a teacher who is manifesting a life of godliness? Uh, can, you, can you look at him or her and know that, <clears throat> okay, there are, there are, mature Christian people that I trust that would affirm this person's ministry. Uh, Based on what I know about the person, they seem to be in line with Scripture. You know, they're not rebelling against clear commands in Scripture. Uh, And this, if you would just ask me, if you were to ask me, let's say you come to me with a devotional, uh, which many of you have done already, and just ask for my opinion on it, and if I don't recognize the person, what am I going to look for? Well, I'm going to, if it's a lady, what am I going to look for? 
I'm going to look for maybe where she stands with this whole egalitarian thing, okay? Because there are clear statements in Scripture that women are not permitted to teach men or to have authority over men in the church. But sadly, many women, many of the most popular women devotional writers and speakers are wrong on that. So they are, I mean, to put it in this language, is that good fruit? That they're they're openly, publicly, weekly, daily rebelling against a clear command in Scripture. Should I be attaching myself to that person's ministry? I I think the answer is pretty clear, right? I mean, if we, again, if we take Scripture seriously, um, which we all do, we want to be discerning. And so that is just one example of that. Is the person living a life of godliness from what we can tell? Um, Or is the person uh, angry? Does he use foul language in his sermon? Some people do this for shock value. Some preachers do this. They'll they'll say ridiculous things just for effect. Uh, And so we need to be discerning about that. And then the second passage so that's the first criteria, the character of the man or the woman who is teaching is an indication. But then 1 John chapter 4 gives us a few other helps for testing what we hear. So 1 John 4, verses 1 to 6, give us five additional criteria to use to test the teaching that we are listening to. That says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit. But test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Again, the same, the same warning about being naive. Don't believe everything. Recognize that there is a spirit behind every teaching, every religious instruction that you are listening to. It is either the Holy Spirit or it's a different spirit. So don't believe every spirit. You have to test the spirits. By this you know the Spirit of God. Okay, here we'll get help. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Okay, so the teaching has to accurately represent who Christ is and his work. So Christ is both truly man, truly God, the Savior of the world. Any teaching that plays with that understanding of Christ, that reduces Christ to a merely moral teacher, a wise teacher, a lesser prophet, and not fully God, the Son of God, is not a teaching that is coming from the Holy Spirit. And these are all the cults, right? All the cults deny the deity of Christ. But he also says, this is the spirit of the Antichrist, of which you have heard that is coming and now is already in the world. And so the Antichrist, that refers to any any time when something other than Christ is put in his place, when Christ is dethroned and there is another Savior that is substituted for Christ. Uh, Is Christ the great theme of this person's teaching and ministry? Is everything they're saying seem to be pointing you continually to Christ? He's the Savior. He's the Good Shepherd. Listen to Christ. Go to Christ. Approach God through Christ. Or is there really a different emphasis? Is something else being substituted for Christ as the Savior? Is the third criteria. Fourth is, uh, beware of any teaching that panders to the world and its values. And he says that in verse 5, he says, They, the false prophets, are from the world. 
Therefore, they speak as from the world, and the world hears them. So any, any Christian teaching that seems to be gaining r- rapid acceptance by the world, you should be just suspicious of. The Christian message is not a message that is embraced by natural people, or by people that are not born again. Uh, the gospel calls people to repent. It calls people to a position of humility and confession before God. Uh, the gospel humbles people, but the world, what does the world want to hear? Self-esteem, self-love, you matter, you're special. Uh, God, he has your picture on his refrigerator, right? And that's the gospel, is that God, God is just so infatuated and enamored with you. And that's, you know, all of the Christian gospels reduced to that, to just this Santa Claus type God. But no, I mean, God is merciful, but, but the world wants a crown with no cross. The, the world wants the crown. They don't want the cross. Uh, the cross is the symbol of the Christian life. Our, the call to discipleship is a call to self-denial. I mean, that's just the major theme of your life now. You wake up, self-denial, 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 self-denial. Yeah, humility, humility, humility. That's how we live. That's the rule of our life. Just try to find any believer in the Bible that had an easy life. Try to find any one of them. I'll take, I'll take one. One believer with no issues, no suffering, no sacrifices, no, no, no suffering whatsoever. Now, all, God's people have always suffered, even that hymn we sang. God moves in a mysterious way. There is a mystery. Uh, and part of that is God has ordained the suffering of his people for his glory. And the, cr- and the crown we receive later. And then finally, John says, we need to compare everything we hear against what the apostles taught. Okay, in verse 6, he says, we, the apostles, are from God. The one who hears God hears us, hears the apostles. The one who is not from God does not hear us. From this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. So, so any, any teacher that is not respecting what the apostles taught in the New Testament, we should ignore. And again, more common than you might think. People that would say, well, I'm a red-letter Christian. Jesus said all this stuff about love and don't judge. And it's this guy, Paul, that seems to be so against all this other stuff. And so I prefer Jesus. Uh, we cannot do that. The apostles are Christ's apostles. Uh, the whole Bible has, should be in red. So if you like red letters, great. Just make them all red. It's all the word of God. And so we can't pick and choose and try to elevate the words, the actual recorded words of Jesus way up here. And then Paul, it's almost like, well, yeah, that's debatable. That's from Paul. We need to go through as much trouble as the world does in testing our teaching. I mean, the world, when they have fine jewelry, you inherit a fine jewel or some piece of gold that you think is gold. What, what do they do? What does the world do when they get that? They want to make sure it's real, don't they? I mean, you can pour acid on gold, you can put vinegar on gold, take it to machines, pay people to test it, rub it against various things. And I'm not a jeweler, but I just, I just know people go through a lot of trouble to make sure their precious stones and jewelry is real. I mean, how much more should we be devoted to uh, the genuineness of what we hear, especially since our, our eternal 
destiny hinges on what we do with what we're hearing in church and what we're reading, what we're reading in the Bible. One man said, the, the word of God is the anvil upon which the opinions of men are smashed. So we're testing everything against the word of God. We, our whole town, our whole family, our whole church might be bought into something, but if it doesn't accord with this, it's smashed. We smash it. And that's, what, that's why we are a church in the Reformed tradition, broadly speaking, is that no, we deny that anyone has the right to just invent doctrine, to become untethered with from the Bible. You, even as an individual Christian, have the right to privately judge what the Scripture teaches and to be fully convinced of what you're reading and what you believe. God does not expect you to just accept anything you hear from a religious teacher. He expects you, on the other hand, to test it. You test it against the word of God. And it, he closes by, by saying this, that we need to hold fast to what is good. We need to cling to it once something has passed the test. That needs to be part of our arsenal. I mean, that needs to be in our mind, in our thinking. We need to memorize scripture. We need to know our theology. Uh, we need to be able to at least articulate what, who Christ is and what he did and how we are benefiting from his work. And the result of that will be good. Uh, in 1 Thessalonians, he says, hold fast to the good. The good is good food. The word is good in that it produces good things in your life. You will prosper. You will know true prosperity as you give yourself and attach yourself to that which passes the test of truth in Scripture. But on the other hand, we need to keep away from what is evil, and this is the last thought he gives us here. We need to abstain from every form of evil. And again, this verse is sometimes used broadly to apply to anything. Well, don't dance, because sinners dance. And so we need to abstain from any form of dancing or, or alcohol. And you can... You can uh, br- Come up with your own examples of that. And again, there could be truth to that in certain situations. But he is still talking about this idea of prophecy. So the primary application of verse 22 is still to prophecy. So if we receive a teaching and it passes the test, we need to hold it fast. But if it fails the test, we need to be far away. We need to run away from it. I mean, don't be, don't be foolish. Right? Don't just say, well, this guy's helpful on these nine things, but I know he teaches this deadly air, but I'm still being helped by these other things. I'm still being helped in my marriage, even though I know he's not quite right on salvation or, or sin and things like this. No, I mean, if someone is teaching a, a serious air, we, we throw that thing away. We, you know, we unsubscribe, uh, we throw the book in the trash, we leave the church, we leave the Bible study, uh, false teaching is poison. And it's dangerous because one, part of you will like it. Part of you will like what false teaching offers because it makes things easier. It gives you excuses, okay? It gives you excuses for sin. And so we can just say, well, I do kind of like, I kind of like how I feel when I expose myself to this. It, it leaves me feeling a little warmer, right? And l- less judgmental. Uh, there is a part of us, even those of us that are really born again and believers, that will be tempted uh, 
to give false teaching a foothold in our life, but we need to be convinced that it is really poison to our soul, and we need to distance ourselves from every form of false teaching. So in conclusion, this text is about our attitude as a church and individually to God's word. And I can assure you, I can assure you, I can promise you, because scripture promises this, that your success, as God defines success, will be according to the role you give scripture in your life. That if scripture is a, the major focus of your life, and you are giving attention to it, you're thinking of it, you're applying it regularly, uh, you'll be blessed by God. God will richly bless you. Uh, there will be trials. Of course there'll be trials. But you will know true blessing. Uh, God will sustain you. He'll give you strength. He'll give you wisdom in those times when, when things are falling apart and you have no idea what to do. But we need to be eager to hear God speak and at the same time not naively accept just anything that comes our way. Right? God promises to bless us as a church even as well for the same reason. And that's why, that's my major focus. I mean, I have all these books on, on church planting and what to do in a small church to get it off the ground. And there's all sorts of things that they put in there. You know, have a focus group. Get a bunch of random people in the community and ask, now what do you want? Now what do you want? Now wh- what would you, oh, you don't like organs? Okay, we'll throw the organ out. Will you come now? No? Oh man, I thought you would. We threw the organ out. Well, they didn't come. Okay, but I'm really taking my cue from God's word, which is the, the scripture needs to be the focus of our church, that we need to honor scripture and we can trust God for the blessing. And you can bank on that same promise in your, in your individual life. That as you honor God's word, you can count on God to sustain you and to bless you and your obedience. Our God, we thank you for the gift of the prophetic word that you have placed in all our hands. We thank you for the completed canon of scripture that we can read it for ourselves that we can hear sermons uh, in, in person and also uh, even through technology. Thank you for all the godly men who have written books that are helpful to us and all the, the ministries that support the local church. We only pray that you would give us discernment, uh, give us wisdom to be able to recognize, even instinctively, well, something is not right here. He said something that's not quite right. I need to study this more. Help us to be like the Bereans uh, of, uh, that we read about in Acts, who, after hearing Paul, they, they went to the Scripture and searched the Scripture to see if it agreed with what Paul said. Help us to have the same spirit as they had, uh, to be careful to, to receive only what you have truly communicated to us. We do pray that you would guard us from all those temptations that would cause us to drift from your word. Uh, cause us to give a place to false teaching. Uh, Please keep us from that. Please also give us humility as our friends try to help us in this and point out some teachers that we we really shouldn't be listening to or or reading. Give us a spirit of humility to receive that not as a an attack uh, but as a a brother or sister trying to love us uh, in a, a helpful way. And then we also pray for a greater eagerness. None of us, I don't think, none of us are as eager as we should be 
to hear your word and to read your word. We pray that we would continually improve in that and establish that as a great discipline in our life, that we are carving out some time in the day each day to hear you speak to us through the written word and give us understanding to understand what we read, uh, give us a heart that is fully engaged with what we read, and then also give us wisdom to apply it in our lives for we are all in so many different places. Uh, Please give us wisdom to apply your word to our lives in a way that honors you and that is faithful to the, the text and what it says. And we pray all this in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen.